Welcome to episode 129 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. How's it going, Dan? Ah, fine. It feels like only episode 127. Hard to believe we're up to 129 <laughs> already, Leslie. Uh, but yes, I'm I'm mostly stumbling through life, but getting ready for the Olympics opening tomorrow morning at 4 a.m. Pacific. So Oof. that's what I'm pumped for. <laughs> yeah, said no one ever. Um, True story. Well, I've already watched some of the Olympics. Uh, Olympic softball, which uh, women's softball is one of my all-time favorite things. I still play when well, when there is a season for my league. But yeah, it was super fun to watch. It's the first time uh, Olympic softball has been back in the games in 13 years. It's Yeah, it's nice. And it certainly helps uh, offset me feeling angry at Kenley Jansen. But uh, <laughs> enough about that. No one wants to hear me brag about the Dodgers or bemoan the Dodgers. Anyway. True story. Plus... Yet another busy week with another good, long interview. Uh, this one, not even with the showrunners. So mixing up the format a little bit. So we should probably get to business. Yeah, here's a teaser alert. It's a big week for TV. you got the Olympics, obviously, which you've mentioned, Dan. And Ted Lasso, the last year's easily big, biggest show of the year among them, I should say. We are joined by a really, really fun guest, Roy Kent himself, Emmy nominee Brett Goldstein will join us in our fourth segment. But before we get to that, let's dive into this week's headlines. Up first, Shailene Woodley will star in drama Three Women, based on the book of the same name for Showtime. Sean Ryan is headed for streaming and has set the night agent thriller at Netflix. Amazon has ordered a second show from Neil Gaiman, this one based on his Ansi Boys novel, which revolves around Mr. Nancy. Orlando Jones is not expected to reprise the role he played in American Gods. So, yeah, lots going on there. And wrapping up the new series orders, Paramount Plus has officially picked up Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies, the series, after it was previously developed for HBO Max. Stephen Colbert is returning to Comedy Central as co-creator and executive producer of The God's Honest Truth with Leonard Charlemagne uh, McKelvey. Yes, I guess that's his name. Also known as Charlemagne the God. The weekly talk show hosted by Charlemagne the God will launch on September 17th. In castings, Anna Torf has joined HBO's live-action take on the beloved video game The Last of Us. Michelle Moynihan will play twins in Netflix limited series Echoes from 13 Reasons Why showrunner Brian Yorkey. America Ferrara has joined Apple's WeWork limited series opposite Anne Hathaway and Jared Leto. In renewals, The Good Fight will return for its sixth season on Paramount+. Plus. The currently running fifth season is excellent, as the show continues to be. And Netflix and NBC are reportedly in talks to revive Manifest, reversing the network's cancellation decision. On the overall deal front, Marja Lewis-Ryan has inked a multiple-year development deal with Showtime ahead of the second season premiere of The L Word, Generation Q. And wrapping things up, Hulu's Penis is getting an animated special, which will debut on August 27th on Hulu as the second half of season two of Pen15 awaits a return date. That sounds very cool and also smart of them because I know you can go back and listen to our showrunner interview with the girls from that, but they had some serious concerns about how the show would return during the pandemic. So Definitely the, the, little bit that, the little bit that they've teased looks very appealing and uh, now that Pen15 is, of course, Emmy-nominated for Outstanding Comedy Series. Uh, hopefully more people will be finding what is truly one of the best shows on TV. Well said, Dan. Well, with headlines out of the way, let's dive into this week's Top 5. Number 1. 
Up first this week, Netflix has reported its second quarter earnings, adding 1.5 million total subscribers for a total global haul of 209 million, Dan. So lots of growth here for them, but uh, it was ahead of estimates thanks to gains in the Asia Pacific region. But domestically, Netflix lost 400,000 subscribers in the U.S. and Canada. So I guess it all comes down to a matter of perspective, whether that's a lot of growth or whether it's a horrible tragedy. I've seen several uh, right-wing websites saying that that 400,000 subscriber drop is because Netflix has become too woke or some nonsense like that. Yeah, definitely nonsense there. Well, the streamer realistically hasn't had the best year so far. They fell short of subscriber forecasts in the first quarter. Uh, The finance chief at Netflix attributed the weak performance to the pandemic, which has delayed a lot of high-profile programs, although CEO Ted Sarandos did say the back half of the year is, quote, back-weighted, which means a lot of big shows coming back. So there's a hint that Bridgerton will possibly come back uh, this year. So that's yet to be determined. And well, we'll have more on that in, a, in another segment coming up because, yeah, there's been a couple of uh, shutdowns on Bridgerton. Shutdowns in the world. Um, yes, one of the biggest things that everyone was discussing out of the earnings call was the expansion into gaming, which I believe that we hinted at last week. Uh, what exactly was revealed about that particular new gambit? Not a whole lot, Dan. The key piece is that Netflix is expanding into gaming with plans for mobile games to eventually be included in its subscription price. But the bigger piece here, too, is live events and merchandising are also part of the streamer's larger plan to grow. And we can talk about that as we've done before, but that's some great evidence of that is seen in in the new deal that Netflix signed with Shonda Rhimes, which includes, yes, options for games as well as live events and merchandising. So there is a Bridgerton ball coming up later this year in London. Different cities have already seen the Stranger Things drive through. This is basically more of what Netflix is, is trying to do to keep subscribers interested, to keep the name of these shows out there and to really expand revenue streams, which is probably the most important piece of all of it. And as always, it wouldn't be a Netflix earnings call without some Utterly BS pieces of viewership data, but we still lap up the BS pieces of viewership data like it's cat vomit because what else are we going to do? So what what exactly did Netflix tease about what its big hits have been of the most recent quarter? Well, they released some quote-unquote viewership data for shows like Sweet Tooth and Shadow and Bone and Part 2 of Lupin, but... I'm not going to repeat those numbers because, you know, as as we have said on this show, multiple, 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 multiple times. Netflix ratings are bullshit. There, he finally said it straightforward. It's not a rating. It's two minutes of a view, which you can watch when it auto plays. It doesn't mean that it was an intentional. It shows intent to view if you believe the Netflix lingo. But I've watched two minutes of of a movie or 20 minutes of a show and then turned it off and not watched more of it. I mean, everyone's done that. It just, you know, so I'm going to save this rant for another time because y'all have heard it before. But yeah, they've said that their big shows this quarter were Sweet Tooth, which hasn't been renewed yet, and Shadow and Bone, which has, and uh, part two of Lupin. So the numbers for Lupin have not been as strong as part one, but again, those numbers are, well, they're pretty meaningless. And you can go back and listen to our interview with the showrunner for Lupin, and he talks about the show already working on parts three and four of that. So it doesn't really matter what they tout. 
it I mean, it, you know, it matters in the sense that it's it's all we have to go on. And so all we're doing is kind of creating a comparative well of meaningless data. And therefore, we can compare it knowing that it's both meaningless data and also that it's a completely partial set of meaningless data because it's not like we're getting the meaningless data for every single show. So if we're not getting the meaningless data for every single show, we don't really know what constitutes a hit or what doesn't because all we can surmise is that if Netflix tells us about something, I guess that means it's a hit. On the other hand, as you say, where my second season renewal of Big of uh, of Sweet Tooth at? You know, like come on, that's that seems easy enough. But no, there's there's also simply no way of knowing because all we can do is go on feel. So from our perspective, or at least from my perspective, I definitely felt as if there was less discussion of the second half of the first season of Lupin than there was the first half. Uh, but what do I know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, as we talk about what what data there is available, just a reminder, all these streaming services have all the data that we want. They know completion rates. They know how soon subscribers completed which episodes and how quickly they watched and how many times they watched. And they've got data on top of data on top of data. So, you know, maybe this is just my, fr- I, I mean, it's not maybe. It's definitely my frustration speaking here, but maybe we should demand better for these companies, you know, especially as our, our colleagues on the film side are now getting a taste of what we've been struggling with for, well, almost a decade since Netflix finally launched into originals. Let's get some real data here. Netflix, transparency is a great thing. Let us know, you know, I mean, change the game. You guys did the first time, you know, let us know completion rates. You have all of this information. Sharing is caring, last I heard. I'm trying or to at least that's what I teach my nieces. So, uh, no, no, it's it, that it's it, that that definitely rings a bell. The whole sharing, caring thing. I, I feel like it might even be true. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, it, I, look, it's it's all confusing. And yes, watching watching our film news colleagues attempt to parse whether or not they should be impressed with the pseudo numbers for the Zack Snyder zombie movie at the same time as. HBO Max has been very, very quiet about the pseudo numbers for the Zack Snyder 18-hour superhero dirge, et cetera, et cetera. All look at the – we've had this rant before, so we don't need to do it again. And trust me, we're going to do it again. So Yeah, but now it's (laughs) spilling over into linear where we've – you know, I was copied on a couple of emails this week where – a linear network was trying to put out a press release touting some ratings performance of a specific scripted show. And there was no ratings actually included in the release. It was like, it's up this percentage from a percentage that we doesn't know of about what, like none of this makes any sense whatsoever. And we're having to sit, sit here and say, we're not writing this unless we have actual data. You guys have the data too. So now it's like, you know, because we're, we're celebrating two minutes of a view and and posting and blasting these stories, just like our competitors are doing, by the way, now all these linear networks is like, well, this show's done really, really great for us. It's up, you know, this crazy percentage point based on, well, I don't know what it would be up compared with. So, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's getting to be a lot. And yeah, we dedicate point. a segment to it. Um, but yeah. yeah, so also in this week's uh, earnings news data, uh, Warner Media recorded its quarter two results and HBO Max has grown to 47 million U.S. subscribers, which is up 3 million from Q1 and globally HBO and HBO Max glue grew glue or grew. 
grew 760,000 to 67.5 million. So at least those are kind of numbers that we can use. Uh, what were other takeaways from that Warner Media earnings report? Well, for our international listeners, and we know you're there, we hear you calling for more uh, international-based se- segments, but HBO La- Max launches in some European markets will be delayed into early 2022 as the platform leans more into Latin American markets where it has seen some early growth. And uh, speaking of theatrical stuff, Warner Brothers will produce 10 movies exclusively for HBO Max in 2022. We have absolutely no details on what those will look like if those are some of the the Greg Berlanti ones that were ordered early on for the service that are going to be exclusive to the streamer, or if these are really high profile tentpole releases that are going to be exclusive to the streamer. So lots of that to keep in, you know, to keep tabs on going forward. And then again, just like Netflix looking ahead, Warner Media is looking forward to a strong end of the year with a number of delayed hits set to return. Among them are Succession, Insecure, Curb Your Enthusiasm on HBO proper, and then on streaming side, um, you've got the Sex and the City update and the Sex Lives of College Girls. The latter is the Mindy Kaling comedy that multiple execs remain very high on. And of course, 2022 will bring House of the Dragon and James Gunn's DC spinoff, The Peacemaker. Uh, I'm trying to think of other things that came out of that call. Apparently, the reduced uh, theatrical window is going to remain in place for a lot of the big titles. So I believe that they said that a 45-day window between theatrical release and HBO Max for the non-day and date titles was going to be in place. And that's And that's, that's just notable. theatrical. Yeah, that, yeah, that's, you know, TV stuff is still available day after air. So. Exactly, exactly. But I, it's, I still find it interesting. And, you know, in the same way that I, I watched The Quiet Place 2 uh, last week on Paramount Plus because the reduced theatrical window made it easy to wait that one out and not go see it in the theaters. Um, And yeah, look, a lot of this is notable in the sense that we talked repeatedly and I would say for good reason about the blundered HBO Max rollout and how the numbers initially were not what they wanted them to be. And, you know, that's that's on Warner Brothers on that. They they made a lot of mistakes and. I'm sure they are both admitting and would admit to a lot of them. But a lot of the numbers that have been going out really, to my mind, tie into the theatrical slate that they put on HBO Max. And so the whole narrative of In the Heights was a box office disaster and blah, 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 which we took to task a couple weeks ago as well. I want to continue to take it to task because, once again, the reason why all of those movies were put on HBO Max initially was not to thwart their theatrical box office. It was to support a streaming service that badly needed support. So if a part of why people have been signing up for HBO Max in recent months is the theatrical movies like Space Jam 2, like In the Heights, Those are valuable properties and successes. So once again, anybody you want to hear talking about In the Heights being a box office failure, no, it didn't make money theatrically. It was not a failure. It served the purpose it was supposed to serve, which was helping a streaming service, which is where the money is. So so keep that in mind next time someone tries telling you, ah, it's going to be a bomb like In the Heights. In the Heights was not a bomb. In the Heights was something that was complicated and its success or failure is not measured in how much money it made at the domestic box office. In conclusion. In conclusion. <laughs> and that actually kind of leads us right into our next topic, so to speak. 
Number two. Up next, the Olympics are officially underway. And speaking of supporting a streaming service, well, that's just what they're going to do for Peacock, or at least that's the expectation over at NBC Universal. So key sports, including women's gymnastics, track and field, men's basketball, all will be available to stream live on Peacock for premium subscribers who pay the $5 a month charge for that. So those events are slated to be live in the early morning hours, at least here stateside. And NBC will continue to put on the key events in primetime hours after they happen. So, Dan, you know, I, I've you said at the top of the show, I've already watched some of the women, the uh, softball stuff in the Olympics. Have you t- checked out anything yet so far? Do you, are you ready? Are you set up on Peacock? What do you think so far? I am not set up on Peacock and I have not yet figured out how exactly I'm going to handle, you know, the volume of Olympics that I maybe want to watch versus how or where I choose to want to watch them. And I think if you heard our interview with uh, with NBC Olympics guru Molly Solomon, which we'll reference probably several more times in this segment, um, I, you know, I think, I think that's intentional, is that basically they want to give you as many different ways as possible to watch it, with Peacock being a major potential draw, but also NBC.com, et cetera, et cetera. So I haven't figured it out. I know that I will by the time people listen to this, I will have watched the the opening ceremony starting at 355 Pacific. Presumably, it's supposed to just be on NBC proper. So that's that's the plan there. Um, yeah, I I need to figure it out because obviously just watching it in NBC primetime is is not going to be an effective way to watch this there. You know, we've we've moved past the point at which anybody can wait until primetime for results that have been out there on ESPN for 12 hours or or where I have, you know, I'm sure many people will continue to do that because it's it's ritual and that's fine. I'm honestly at this point, yes, I'm very excited about Simone Biles because she's always fun to watch and, you know, greatness is fun to watch. I am I am a fan of watching the best of anyone, anything do their stuff. Um, I am curious as to whether the Olympics men's basketball team is going to be the disaster they were in their first two preliminary games or if that will have just been a ha ha ha, we're changing expectations Um they're eventually going to win. And that's something we didn't discuss with Molly last week that I kind of would have wanted to if we'd had an hour and a half with her. We only had, you know, 45, <laughs> 45 minutes. minutes. Yeah. But wh- but whether it's it's better or worse for business, if it's actually competitive, like if if there's the possibility that the U.S. men's basketball team can lose, does that make it more exciting? I have no answer to that. Similarly, does the U.S. women's soccer team getting crushed by Sweden in their first game and in soccer, losing three nothing is getting crushed. Um, you know, does that make people more curious, or is the reason why we turn, tune into that team because we like watching greatness? And you know, who knows? But now, now the U.S. women's soccer team and the U.S. men's basketball team—they're underdogs, so that's fun. No, it's all—it's all good, and this is all exciting. And I, I love me some Olympics, but at the same time. There's going to be no way of watching a single second of this game with games without being aware that there's no one in the stands, without being aware that the city of, of Tokyo is on some degree of lockdown outside to know that the number of covid cases in the Olympic Village is is trickling up. It hasn't exploded, but it's not insignificant uh, to know that the organizer, director, whatever it was of the opening ceremonies was relieved of his 
duties and responsibilities because in his comedy routine he made Holocaust jokes. I you know and you the, can say what it is. He was fired. Yes, he was fired. But I'm sort of the, the the exact logistics of what he said, what he did, what it is, what steps that the organizers are taking to cleanse the entire process of his influence. Not that there were going to be Holocaust jokes in the opening ceremony, presumably, but even still, not a great choice. So it's just kind of it's one thing after another that makes it impossible to look at this as either a television event or a sporting event and makes it inevitable and unavoidable to look at as a, my God, this is now a snapshot of society in decay. Um, it's, it's tough. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be struggling to figure out how to watch it as anything other than the weirdest Olympics ever. But if that's just what it is, I guess that's fine. Yeah. I mean, you know, we can go back and listen to our interview last week with Molly Solomon, who was absolutely tremendous. And we heard so much great feedback from people who did already check out that that interview. But she was very open as well as much as she could be about how the pandemic changed NBC's coverage plans and how the absence of fans will be handled and what makes it into prime time and what's going to be exclusive to the streamer and and how the, the streaming service is going to cater to to super fans with a lot of prepared uh, packages around athletes and some fun other shows featuring Snoop Dogg and a couple other people, um, you know, plus, you know, how the, exactly NBC Universal is going to cover all the controversies. So there continue to be increased calls to cancel the Olympics. Bob Costas, who's obviously been a part of a number of Olympic ceremonies uh, of his, uh, in his own uh, days, has called agrees that they should have been delayed another year. So if you're a fan of the Olympics, you're going to watch. I mean, I'm going to speak from my own experience. I'm already watching. I love the Olympics. I have since I was a little kid. I went to a couple events in, in 1984 when I was here in L.A. and I was 10. And it was just so it's a cultural touchstone, right? You know, athletes and careers are born and made, you know, who, you know, people remember, you know, Carrie Strug or, or, you know, for me, Mary Lou Retton. And, you know, people will remember Simone Biles because of what she does here. And, and this is obviously something that celebrates the human spirit, but you're also missing a number of, of athletes who tested, who've already tested positive or who've, who have had to back out because of whatever reason. So it's, there's just, there's so much going on. And, I don't even know, you know, and we, we've talked, you know, we had uh, there's a great story on THR today from our, our colleague, uh, the great Rick Porter, that explores how much the ratings will fall and kind of going off of what you were saying about in the Heights. It's the same kind of thing here. NBC, again, is using the Olympics, which was part of the, their original launch plan last year to boost Peacock. That's their goal. I mean, yes, they want to make money from advertising, which is probably the only reason the games are still going forward right now, considering all that's wrong in the world right now. But it's got to support Peacock. So you can expect the linear ratings are going to tumble. That's a given at this point. But will Peacock get additional signups? Last we heard, Peacock has 42 million signups as of April. A Bloomberg report translated that to about 14 million monthly users with only 3 million paying customers. So you want to watch some of these tentpole events live, women's gymnastics, men's basketball. You got to sign up. You got to pay five bucks a month. So we'll see what those numbers are after the Olympics are over. And we'll see if, if Peacock, what the kind of what the churn rate will be if, if people sign up for the Olympics and then cancel as soon as they're over. And it's always worth remembering that the common narrative before an Olympic starts 
is this Olympics is going to be a disaster. That is that is one of the most common storylines pre-Olympics. Uh, you go back to Sochi and I guess that was 2014 and all of the stories were about the unfinished Olympics village and the idea that everything might potentially be a catastrophe and relatively speaking, the Olympics went off just fine. And then you had Rio a couple of years ago. I guess that was maybe 2016. And before all of the narratives were the athletes can't go out of the village because they're going to get mugged or killed or why is the water in the diving pool green or what's happening with the poop in the water. And, you know, some of those continued to be storylines that happened. But once the games actually start in an ideal world, the storyline becomes, oh, my God, did you see what Simone Biles did? It became, oh, my God, look at that new swimmer who is now going to be on the Wheaties box. That's what the storyline becomes. And so in an ideal world for NBC, but also for sports fans and, and humanity as a whole, the storyline will ultimately be an overcoming adversity. Here's how the Olympics ended up being still rousing and inspiring and all of that. And not, boy, that was depressing as hell. Why would we ever want to do the Olympics in front of an empty venue ever again? We'll see. I, I, it will be interesting to watch the storyline either evolve or remain stuck where we currently are. And either everyone's going to end up at the end going, that inspired us. It was what we needed. It was Ted Lasso only in real life. Or whether everyone will be in 14 days. Yeah, we really should have postponed this. This was a very, very, very bad idea. So who knows? It's it's way too early to, to know. Yeah. Well, we just hope everyone remains safe and healthy as can be. So good luck and go go USA. Up next, Hollywood's major studios and guilds have, after months of debate, come to a new agreement about onset COVID protocols. Number three. So the current protocols have been in place for months and have been easing for fully vaccinated cast and crew. And obviously, as the world has been opening up again, these have been opening up again. But the new mandates, which will be in place through the end of September, well, break down what the differences are or how things have been altered by what we reached this week. Yeah, well, what happened this week is is the studios and the guilds basically said that if you are vaccinated, some of these protocols are going to be relaxed. Um, but the big headline that came out this week is that producers will have the option to mandate vaccines for cast and crew in zone A. And that's the, obviously the primary zone where actors are maskless while cameras are rolling, et cetera. That's the most susceptible zone because of the lack of PPE, because you're you know, obviously you're filming these shows and not everything is Grey's Anatomy where they have masks on at all times. So this new agreement is going to be in place through September. And the news, of course, comes as the Delta variant has seen a number of productions, both stateside and um, in the UK, shut down following positive tests. Shows impacted include Bridgerton, which is now shut down indefinitely following a second positive in a week. Game of Thrones offshoot House of the Dragon, American Horror Story, Woke, Saved by the Bell, among others. You know, at least here in, in L.A., cases and hospitalizations continue to soar, uh, which is, of course, L.A. being a massive production hub. Um, you know, and in short, Dan, you know, it, it's it's great that productions have the option to require vaccinations, but relaxing the rules as the Delta variant continues to to 
to see cases rise everywhere, even among the vaccinated. Yeah, I'm, I'm just crawling back into my my hermit status. So I'm not there yet, but it, it is absolutely striking that we are at a cusp point. There's there's no question about it, because everywhere and everything is halfway between okay, we're all vaccinated or we're all nearly vaccinated, but also lots of the world and lots of people aren't vaccinated. So are we supposed to be pretending like things are normal? But also you look at the numbers and the numbers are clearly not normal. So you have all of these productions being like, yay, let's go back into production. Oh, nope, wrong test. So, okay, guess we're going to be now delayed for three days. And it's, I mean, it's everybody that that list you just, listed is a is a partial list and it's some big name shows but you know the the three day or two day shutdown at this point is you know i get the feeling everyone just kind of builds it into the process that it's it's just okay that if, if we're, we're gonna have to shut down for two days for covid okay whatever and you look at london for example getting back into back into theater and so theater opening and then theaters shutting down and so we have broadway shows getting ready to reopen but what's going to happen when cast member a or b gets sick or a test positive because people can be asymptomatic as well everything is just right on that edge of okay we're back to normal okay clearly we're not back to normal and we also of course have half the country that thinks that we're back to normal and that all of this stuff is in the past and then also people who read newspapers and so yeah it's 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 uh look we've been we're 17 months now into or 16 months now into talking about COVID protocols and, you know, who can do what and who can shut down and who can do production. And so, yeah, it's all it's all mixed. It's all mixed signals. It's half the signals are let's go back to normal and half the signals are we're shutting down because we don't know what to do. It's uh, I would I would say this might be the most confusing part of the process when no one could shoot anything there. That wasn't confusing. That was we're in a pandemic. We can't do production. This can't happen. Now we're in the we think we can be in production, except that we really can't be. So what does that mean we're supposed to do? And that is very strange. And I'm very glad I'm not a person who has to make decisions on any of this because, yeah, there's there's no there's no right answer. You you know, unless the right answer for you is being a hermit, in which case hermit it up, I say. Yeah, I mean, I, this is a sentence I never thought, but who who would have thought that the NFL which said this week that if a team has to forfeit because of COVID, that will count as a loss. So <laughs> here's the NFL coming out and saying, stay safe, get vaccinated, without having to say, stay safe, get vaccinated. But yet they're they're putting in penalties. You know, like, it's just, yeah. I, I realize I'm coming off as a very, very strong uh, pro-vaccine person, but also just the idea that y- you can be vaccinated, go out and get COVID, and then that can turn into long covid there, there's it's it's dangerous and you know the, the fact that we're relaxing these these rules right now and giving people the option to mandate vaccinations why is it an option you know you know what Leslie I to, I don't think you need to worry I think it is completely okay if this comes out as a pro vaccine podcast I you know I'm just I am okay guess what 
I too, Leslie, am pro-vaccine. If that is a controversial statement, then uh, then I apologize to anyone who is offended by it because yeah, I'm not apologizing. No, I'm actually, really, if, I'm if sorry to you for not apologizing. No, no, if you're, yeah, if you're if you're offended by a pro-vaccine statement, I'm I'm actually not offended. Um, anyway, <laughs> well, th- th- things are a mess. Get vaccinated, and yeah. Be careful out there if you're on a TV set, a film and TV set. Exactly. Get vaccinated, but also still be careful because, as we've been saying all this whole time, we are all in this together. But if half of people are swimming in the opposite direction, it makes it really hard for us to actually be together. So it would be good if everyone actually were together. But, oh, well, our our podcast is not going to solve that problem. No. Well, enough about all of this. Let's get to to happier news. Up next, it's our showrunner spotlight segment. You said at the top of the show, Dan, we're doing something a little different this week. Number four. Indeed, we were joined by Ted Lasso co-creator and showrunner Bill Lawrence uh, in the episode 81 from last August when the first season premiered. And so for season two, we are mixing things up and we are chatting with one of the show's many multi-hyphenates. Brett Goldstein is a newly minted first-time Emmy nominee for his performance as gruff aging superstar Roy Kent, but he's also a writer and co-producer on the acclaimed comedy, and he co-created the recent AMC anthology series Soulmates. Thanks so much for joining us, Brett. And before we even get started, I just want to say congratulations on your Emmy nomination. Thank you very much. I would appreciate it if you only refer to me for the rest of the show as Emmy nominee Brett Goldstein. Great. Well, Emmy nominee Brett Goldstein, how gratifying (laughs) is it not just for the show to have 20 total Emmy nominations, but for everyone in the cast as well? Uh, I mean, it really is. Uh, Look, truthfully, the whole thing's very surreal. I didn't think anyone would watch the show. So to, to have ended up like this is insane and i don't feel it's real and i keep waiting for someone to wake me up or something but i do like that it does feel very ted lasso that we should be nominated as a team you know what i mean it's sort of much nicer like that i mean i don't like the fact that i'm gonna have to wrestle brendan jeremy and nick live on air to see who can actually claim the award even if none of us win i'm still gonna (laughs) wrestle them so as as you mentioned when Season one premiered, the show was kind of an unknown commodity, and it was also, of mm-hmm. course, in the middle of, of COVID, so there were all of the things that mm-hmm. you guys couldn't do to sort of celebrate the premiere. What has it been like the past couple of weeks, having an actual premiere, doing events, doing press, mm-hmm. getting to actually be out there for the show? I think that's, yeah, that that's a good point you bring up, which is, it's mad anyway. Like, it's mad anyway. The, the, it's mad anyway. But, like, the premiere was so insane. And it was insane on its own. But add to that that we've all been in lockdown. So to to be surrounded by that many people and all these cameras and all these journalists and all these fans that were there, fucking hell, it was insane. <laughs> it was just like, I, I, I don't even know. I think you become, like... Um, quite zen during it because it seems so crazy that your brain can't compute it so you just go like okay we're just experiencing this dream that's happening let's just float through it i've no idea at what point someone's going to tell us it's a prank so let's just enjoy this bit uh and yeah you're right we we were in lockdown so when it came out uh there was the only way i guess we had any inkling of anything was you know, we saw that there were some very lovely reviews 
and you could see on social media that people were talking about it, you know, so, and then eventually people getting in touch with you to tell you stuff. So it's, but, but still I was just in an attic in my house, uh, you know, with my Muppets poster, just like, is this real? Is anything real? Uh, and you know, me and, me and Hannah went for a walk through New York. We're in New York for, for press and we went through for a walk and people kept stopping us to say hello and how much they love the show, which was very, very nice. But also, I, again, was like, oh, is this real? Is this a, like, are we in the Truman Show? What's happening? You know, because <laughs> you, you, we haven't experienced a lot of it. So, and every time someone stops you, you think you're in trouble. <laughs> like, what have I done? I haven't done? Oh, oh, okay. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. So when people recognize you, do they recognize you as Emmy nominee Brett Goldstein or do they recognize you, you as Roy Kent's? Uh, what, what is the sort of the trigger of recognition that people have when they see you? I'll be honest. I was walking along with Hannah, who is a, a very tall, very striking, beautiful woman with blonde hair. I think they rec- then they're spotting her. <laughs> I think what happens <laughs> is they see her and then they come over. And then and what happened a lot is they're like, oh, my God, I love you. I love your show. And they'd think I was just a guy next to it. And then they'd turn and they'd be like, fuck it out. Oh, right. Oh, you're here too. <laughs> <laughs> and no, so and so no one has- sung the... Go on, Dan. No, I was just gonna- exactly the same thing. No, no one has sung to you. No one has sung Roy Kent to you. <laughs> uh, no, I think people go, oh, shit. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Run. <laughs> so I, I do want to go back because, you know, as we had Bill Lawrence on the podcast last year, pegged to the premiere, obviously well before the show really struck out in the way that it did. But, you know, the first season launched last August. And as we've talked about on the show for a long time, it really served as as a bomb to what was a pretty challenging time, um, at least here in the U.S. with the second surge of the pandemic and the final run up to the U.S. presidential election. Mm. But for you sitting in your in your attic, with your Muppets poster as Emmy nominee Brett Goldstein, how did the response to Ted Lasso season one really affect you? I think it's hard to take any of that in or to like it's really really wonderful to to hear those things, but it's also at no point did any of us want a pandemic. <laughs> like we didn't make the show, we didn't make the show during the pandemic, or the, it wasn't like we thought, oh, let's do this because this will be a nice thing for, you know, we were making it, you know, before the pandemic, things were pretty bad, you know, in terms of public discourse. And I think one of the things that that was the aim of the show, maybe, I think that was baked into it from the beginning is public discourse had become very, very unpleasant and very ugly. And you had, you know, it's weird how how quickly... People in the public eye uh, were horrible and like sort of proudly horrible. No one was kind of hiding it. It wasn't like secretly this person's horrible. It was like, yeah, I'm fucking horrible and I'm proud of it. It was like, this is what's happening now. Everyone's just being mean and kind of bragging about how mean they are. It's like, it was so ugly. And and part of what Ted Lasso is, uh, is that he is this, he is an American who is ignorant, who comes over, who knows nothing about this sport. He's been hired to coach. and But instead of coming over and kind of arrogantly blustering through it and shouting at people and sort of going like, 
I'm the best, so I'll figure it out. It'll be the best and it'll be fucking great. Uh, he is, as it said, you know, as the sort of thesis of the show, he is curious and not judgmental. He is open about his ignorance to it. He is he is empathetic to people. He meets them where they are. He listens to people. He wants to learn. He isn't there going, I don't know anything, so I'm never going to know anything, so fuck you. <laughs> He's going, teach me, and I'm here to learn. And here's what I can bring. What I can bring to you is optimism and and uh, decency and uh, teamwork is teamwork across the board. There are things that apply to this sport, but I don't know about this sport, and I'm here to learn your culture, learn your ways, you know. And so that was a real taking the type of the, if I may, you know, ignorant American and, and, and what, and what, and also what America was this, this dream of idealism and optimism and, and being able to achieve stuff in a way that is loving. And that's kind of what it used to be. (laughs) And, and I think that, that got lost somewhere. So it's a part of that is kind of baked into the character of Ted, if that makes sense. So uh it's lovely to know that some of what we were aiming to do it seems to have done for some people is there pressure that comes with that because i mean the way you just put it was the point of the show was nothing less than basically to change the entire <laughs> international discourse surrounding multiple <laughs> countries and yeah, then but... <laughs> sudden, and then suddenly, it's not just changing the discourse of the world, but suddenly, it's also giving people a ray of life and a gl- light in a global pandemic. Those are big things yeah. for a half-hour show to aspire to. Did anyone yeah. think, "Wow, that's a lot of pressure we're putting on ourselves"? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just a little comedy show. The the, but I think that the, I. I, I in a way, I think it says more about the world than it says about the show, as in, I think it says how starved we were to see people interacting decently with each other and trying to be better. That's how starved we were that this show seems to be revolutionary. Whereas if there were, if we were seeing a lot of this kind of behavior, it wouldn't be. So in a way, it's like, it's, it's, it's great for the world and it's sad for the no, great for the show and sad for the world, you know, because it's like I almost wish it didn't mean that much because I think it tells us more how fucking desperate we were to see people be <laughs> nice to each other and try and and try. And, and what I'm again, I'm proud of with Ted Lasso is it doesn't happen in a vacuum, it isn't, uh, in terms of the storytelling and the writing, like it has these messages, if you will. We don't think of it like that, but you know the themes of it are kindness and teamwork and and trying to be better and being accountable and forgiveness, all these things. But it does them through storytelling and it does them, it isn't just kind of slogans. It isn't, people aren't talking like they're Hallmark cards. Like, And it happens in a world in which, you know, Ted has panic attacks. He's going through a divorce. Like, he's not just a lovely guy and everything's fine. Like, he's not living in a fairy tale. Things are difficult for him. And it's about the choice that when when things are difficult, you choose to try the better path, the kinder path, the more empathetic path. And with you know Roy, his his there's a tragedy to Roy. He doesn't want this. He doesn't want to finish his career. He doesn't want his body to be letting down him down. He doesn't want to be aging. It's it's heartbreaking. And uh, and then there's the the reality of Rebecca had this plan, and the plan was destroy the team, get them relegated. And in the end, she achieves her plan. It's not. 
this ending of like it's it's I was we're always sort of fascinated how 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 much people see this show as positive and I love that about it because actually when you analyze the plot it's pretty bleak <laughs> you know they lose uh, Roy, Roy's knees fucked uh, uh, you know <laughs> everyone kind of kind of loses stuff and 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 the the sort of almost Greek tragedy of how they get relegated is the one bit of football that that Ted understood was make the extra pass. That's what he's trying to instill in his players. And because he finally got through to one of his players, Jamie makes the extra pass and they get relegated. Like, I love that. Like, that's cool because it is about kindness, empathy, optimism, idealism. But it happens in difficult circumstances. Getting into everything else too, you know, can you walk us through how you first wound up connecting with with Bill Lawrence and Jason Sudeikis and the show and and how you wound up transitioning from playing Roy Kent as well as being a key member of the writing staff for the show. So so I had acted before in a Bill Lawrence pilot, in a pilot that he'd done. I'd come out to LA for pilot season. I got this part in a pilot and the pilot didn't get picked up. The pilot was really good and I'll never understand why it didn't get picked up, but it led us here. So everything's good. (laughs) Uh, but making the pilot, you know, me and Bill got on very well and we kept in touch and clearly wanted to work with each other more. And he literally called me up out of the blue. Like the whole thing is, you know, you. it's funny how I've spent my whole life working. I'm a workaholic. I've always worked. I've always made stuff. I've always, I do stand-up acting, writing. I'm constantly generating stuff. But the stuff I've done is at a certain level of, people seeing it you know it's enough to pay the bills it's enough I've done fine I'm very grateful for it but part of why I was always writing is I I I was like there's never going to be a magic phone call no one's going to suddenly call you up and go hey out of the blue here's the thing that you should do like that's never going to happen so you just have to keep making your own stuff keep doing thing keep grinding away and when I look back on it I go oh yeah but then I did get that magic phone call (laughs) but it but it was after you know however many thousands of years of the of the grind but 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 Bill Lawrence kind of out of the blue called me up and said uh we're making this show with we're making this football show and it's set in England and I think you'd be perfect to write on it uh and uh and it's these sketches these Ted Lasso sketches I was like based on them and I was like oh I love that and also the the original sketches Ted Lasso is coaching Tottenham Hotspur who are my team so it felt like Oh yeah, this is a sign. I'm meant to do this then. <laughs> and uh but then Bill was like, You need to meet Jason because you know, he might not, he might not like you. You have to let let let's set up a FaceTime with with the two of you. And so I had a FaceTime at like because I'm in England, it was like one thirty in the morning with Jason Sudokus and and immediately we we got on and I was like, Yeah. And and I wasn't I thought this conversation would be like twenty minutes and like an hour in the connection broke. And I thought, oh, that'll be the end of that. And then he called me back and I was like, oh, we're, <laughs> we're still going. And we talked for like an hour and a half. And I remember thinking, fuck, I'm in love now. That's <laughs> that's a problem. And uh, and we hung up and then they asked me to join the writers' room. And, and I was suddenly on a plane, like within days, I was on a plane to LA on a Sunday. And then on Monday, I was in the writers' room. And so that was brilliant. We were working on the show. And while we were writing it, I think it was during episode five is when I think I started to feel very strongly about it, was that I started to think, I think I'm Roy Kent. (laughs) 
and it was like a real cooling like a I think back on it I'm like it's kind of mad how seriously I believed it like uh, and I've almost never had that with a part but I was like I'm fucking Roy Kent <laughs> and, and uh and I felt it in my in my soul and but I also knew no one is thinking of me for Roy Kent not a single person in this room is thinking of me for Roy Kent uh and that's partly because I you know I like the Muppets and partly because in the past I've I've played a lot of quite a lot of sort of nice guy soft type characters so it's so it's not you know the the type of casting i had done before so no one's thinking of me and i didn't want to make anyone uncomfortable and i loved the writers and casting had started on the show and uh and then on my last day in the writer's room when i was leaving i i recorded the night before i recorded five scenes as roy on my own and i emailed when I left, I said goodbye to her and I emailed and I said, look, I've been thinking for ages that I could play Roy, but I know no one's thinking of me for Roy. And if this is embarrassing or you're at all uncomfortable that I've even asked, you can <laughs> pretend you never got this email and I'll never ask. I will never ask. This email never happened, so don't worry. However, I made these scenes. I really believe I could play Roy. If you like it, great. And if you don't, we'll never talk about it ever again. And please don't be angry that I did this. <laughs> and I and I set the tapes, and then it like I flew I flew back to England, and and, and I think when I landed, there was like a message at two in the morning that was like, "This is fucking brilliant," and I was so excited. I think they just thought I can't be bothered to keep looking, so I got the part. <laughs> well, was it all a product of sort of as you're writing? you found yourself enjoying writing Roy? Like, did you, as you were writing it, go, okay, I know what's in this guy's head. Every word coming out of his mouth, I know where it's coming from. I mean, I, I don't know that... Jason asked me that the other day. He was like, did you write knowing it would be, thinking it was be you when we were writing? I was like, no, because I didn't necessarily think I'd get the part. You know, it was, I wasn't writing like that. I was always writing equally for everyone. It was just that I really felt I understood his his anger and and the tragedy of him that he wanted to play football until he died and and there's this awful thing called aging which means at some point you probably can't and he just doesn't want that to ever come and the the kind of depression i think he has that he he's finishing he knows his career is he's probably got a year or two left at the beginning of the season and and he's with these fucking idiots and he's surrounded by you know, Jamie Tart and all these fucking idiots. And, and then and then this clown shows up who's going to take over. And it's like, this is, I'm a fucking Champions League winner and I'm going to end on a fucking rodeo with this idiot. And, and then the kind of slight melting of the iceberg that is Roy Kent, I just, I really got it. And I think it was the scene, the scene I think that really, where I was like, I know how to do this. It was the scene in the car park with Keely in episode five where he scares her at the, and she says, I was sneaking up on a woman, you must be very proud. <laughs> and uh, I think I just kind of, yeah, I got it all. I understood it. So I where is the it. line between Emmy nominee Brett Goldstein and Roy Love Kent? Love it, Leslie, you're, you're excellent. Uh, <laughs> where is the, where, like, like, what's the difference between the two of us? Yeah. The difference is I am cursed with a gene 
that slightly worries about what people think of me. So I suppress all the fucking rage I feel on a daily basis. That is pretty much the difference. Is Roy <laughs> Roy doesn't care what people think of him, so he lets it all out. I work very hard to to not let it all out. I think that's the difference. I also think playing Roy Kent's probably made me nicer because all the anger I have, I get to express it through Roy. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, la, 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 la. <laughs> <laughs> well, it didn't strike me until having this conversation that Roy Kent is sort of like Emmy nominee Brett Goldstein's uh, Batman voice. That yeah. it's Is that how you it's sort Batman. of conceived of where it came from? <laughs> well, the, vo- the voice is... I was thinking, I've only sort of pinpointed it recently because it was all kind of instinctive. But the voice, uh, a part of it comes from, he's so repressed, Roy, and he's holding everything in and he's so filled. He's this boiling cauldron of feelings that he can't let out. That like, it's all in, It's he's having to keep everything in. Like, it's pulling down because if he let it out, he'd fucking sing. You know what I mean? Like, that's... I think where the voice comes from, it's it's the everything being pulled down from the inside. That makes sense. Absolutely. One of the things that's fun about the show and and somewhat unique is the number of you guys in the cast who are also writers, um, both mm. on the show in general. When you've got you, Brendan, and Jason, but also Nick as a writer, etc. Mm-hmm. How does that change? the dynamic when you're actually on set having that many writers in front of the camera as well? I mean, it's only a good thing. It it, it means you've got more more brains that really, really care about the show being present at all times to keep it, keep it, keep it good. And, and if we want to change something or pitch something, we're all together and we can, yes and each other and build build more stuff uh and also it's a good thing to have to hold over the actors the actors who don't know what's coming next in the script (laughs) (laughs) so it's it's a fun thing to do to be able to tell phil dunster i know i kept telling to heave how (laughs) i kept telling to heave uh how his character ended and he kept being like, what? He ends. And I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I kept saying, I kept describing a very stupid way that his character was going to die. And he was like, when does this happen? I was like, next episode, you'll see. You'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so that's fine. How much when you're actually on set is what you shoot what's on the script? And how much would you say that there's actually room for, especially amongst those of you who do the writing thing for a living as well, to improvise or go off and do your own thing i think i can't remember what jason quite calls it i think we call it like pre-improvising as in look we, the, the writers on the show and i not including myself the writers on the show are fucking incredible so the scripts are really really good you sort of don't want to fuck with the scripts uh but we will go over how they sound you know just before we do a scene and and if we have any thoughts or jokes or lines we'll we'll discuss them then before we shoot and then once we're shooting I mean, Jason in particular will will give a whole load of vaults when it's on his coverage. And I think partly because he has new ideas and partly it's to make us laugh because he likes ruining scenes. <laughs> he likes making me laugh so the scene is ruined. Uh, but yeah, things is, 
you find things in the moment, you find things in the scene, but it's but it's a lot more. Uh, I don't know the like. It's a lot more the script than maybe you think. Like it is, they're really good scripts that we then record, and then occasionally they'll be improvising. Occasionally there'll be new lines, but it's. Mm, I don't know the answer to that. It's a mixture, but it's mostly script. <laughs> now, the first season, as you mentioned, it came from this series of shorts uh, on NBC Sports, mm-hmm. and a lot of the humor of those of those shorts could just be boiled down to, ha, 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 he's an American who doesn't understand British things. Ha, 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 yeah. he doesn't understand soccer. And a lot of the first season was fish-out-of-water comedy, because of course it is. Mm-hmm. The second season feels like it's, significantly less that it feels like the show is kind of finding its own voice away from that. How much fun was it to write the fish out of water stuff, but also how much of a relief was it to get away from the ha ha ha. Isn't it funny that the British call (laughs) this, this and whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'll say this writing season two, writing season one was incredible. Writing season two was even more of a pleasure and something that I didn't know because I've not had this experience as a writer. I've not been in this position before. But writing writing a season two script is so joyful because you know the actors now. So when I'm writing dialogue, when I wrote episode five in season one, we didn't know who the cast was. So you're writing the characters, you're writing what the, what it is. But then in season two, I know who the actors are. I know what their voices sound like. I know what they're good at. I know what they're funny at. So writing dialogue that in your head you can hear as Hannah Waddingham, as Jeremy Swift, as Juno Temple, it's like, this is fucking great. It was really, it really felt like, you know, that phrase, I've only recently understood it, but, you know, we have a sandbox now. We have a sandbox and we have these action figures in the sandbox. We've built this thing. And now it's, we're so lucky we get to play with these action figures in this sandbox that we've made. So season two was really lovely to write, even more than season one. Uh, not to bring us down from all, all the joy and pleasure here, but, you know, when uh-huh. we had... Bill Lawrence on the show last year, he mentioned yeah. that 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 you guys were unlikely to write the pandemic into the scripts. Yes. Walk us through the decision to ignore the pandemic in season two. Uh, I honestly can't remember how much of a conversation it was. I think it was, I think honestly, it was probably more of a conversation between Bill and Jason than it was all of us. I think it was a very early decision in the writer's room that that was going to happen. And I think it was... There was a kind of, <laughs> there was a Ted Lasso optimism in in the decision itself in terms of maybe by the time this show comes out, there won't be a pandemic anymore. So let's not focus on it. You know, that's that, there was some hope in our, in our writing of that, that it might be dealt with by then. And also it, it's, I, I, I think our instincts were right on it in terms of, I hope that everything is better soon. I re- you know, of course, I really, really hope it is. And if it is, and we get back to some kind of normality, I feel like you won't want to see a lot of stuff about the pandemic, with, with pandemic stuff in. I feel like we're, and, and there is a, there's a way of approaching a show, which is, this is a show for now, and this is a show for forever. And if we'd, if we'd set it in the pandemic, it dates it, it very much dates it. It means if you're watching this show in 10 years, you go, oh, that was the pandemic time. You know what I mean? And so I think it's partly that. It's about the longevity of it, of wanting this show to exist in the future. And 
we had enough story to deal with without <laughs> without whacking in a pandemic. You know, in terms of the, the logistics or maybe some of the creative decisions, what were some of the things that you couldn't do because of the pandemic? I, you know, I'm trying to think of, you know, obviously the football matches and the crowd yeah, scenes yeah. in stadiums. Like, how did the production change from what you guys did in season one? We had an incredible, I mean, we did more than I thought we'd be able to do. And we had a, a, a really incredible COVID team and we were all, we were all tested all the time. And we, we had, uh, covid marshals on set everywhere so we were constantly being told don't get any nearer each other and stuff like that so we were we were very much looked after and we never shut down we never had to shut down like they did a really really good job this covid team and the thing with the football scenes although there are obviously we don't have all the crowd some of the crowd we have a bit of a crowd and then the crowd is done in post-production but we do have groups of people and we have the football team but the upside of that is it's all outdoors. So that is a bit easier. Uh, and, you know, everyone has to wear masks between takes. And it's sort of, you, it, it's funny how quickly you get used to it. Because in the beginning, it was like, how are we going to do this? And within a week, you're so used to having something shoved up your nose and <laughs> wearing a mask all the time and to, popping it off to say a couple of lines and popping it back on. And, you know, you just, and also you're just so fucking grateful the whole time. You're just like, I can't believe we're allowed out of the house. And we get to do this. Like, I'm not going to complain about. You're like, stick it, stick it in my, stick it in my eyeball. Fine, <laughs> I'm just happy to be here. Uh, so yeah, I mean, logistically, it was a bit trickier, and I think we had a, a longer schedule to to allow for the amount of time we'd have being tested, and and the, you know, someone someone walking around spraying gel into your hands every ten minutes and. You forget, you forget, because you get so used to it. It just became very normalized. But yeah. Now, from a performance perspective, what are the challenges of playing Roy's more monosyllabic moments? How do you, how do you know when you get the right grunt or growl, and it's actually going to be funny rather than scary or unappealing? I guess. Uh, it's a really good question, and I don't think I have an answer for you because I think it's. It's just instinct. It's just, it feels right. It just feels right. Or it doesn't. And I, I, I wish I could give you more like, yeah, I really have a <laughs> really uh, profound answer for you. But it's like, it, it, it just is what it is. As in, I just, it's what feels right coming out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I wish I was cleverer. <laughs> So, uh, you know, the first season felt like it was very much structured around the beats of an underdog sports movie. Bill told us last year about, all, you know, all these nods to different iconic uh, properties in the past, too. And season two feels a little bit more like a romantic comedy. Um, how did you guys discuss this in terms of the writing process? How did you approach the, the second season? It's so hard to talk about the second season because there's so much that you haven't seen yet. And I wish I wish. I am as frustrated as the audience that the shows are coming out once a week because there's so <laughs> many I want to talk about. Bless you. There's so many that I want to go. Yeah, but oh, and then and then this happens. And this happens. Like I'm very excited for what people are going to discover as the journey goes on, but can't really talk to you about it because I worry anything I say may lead you to something further down the line than it should. 
And I apologize. So, excellent question, but I will choose not to answer it. <laughs> I choose to take the fear in case the answer will incriminate me. I, I appreciate that you figured out the nuances of the American legal system. Um, <laughs> well, first, first thing I did before I came over here, I was like, right, tell me, tell me the things I need to know. <laughs> I, th- I think we can say without spoiling anything that the second season very much expands on Roy's relationship with his niece, Phoebe. Um, yeah. In the first season, when did you recognize that that was a dynamic that was playing well? And what have you learned about how to act and also how to behave around Elodie, the actress who plays your niece? Right. That is a question I can answer, and I'm glad you asked it. Elodie, who plays Phoebe, is an incredible actor. Exhibit A. <laughs> She's an amazing actor, and I, you know, with ch- with child actors, I have a theory like there's no in between. Child actors are either the greatest actor you've ever seen, or the worst, or you hate them, <laughs> and and it's such a gamble because some 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 ch- child actors get it, some don't, some have it naturally. You know, it's a real one or the other, and you don't know what you're going to get. And when we had in episode three had the scene at the school with Ted and Elodie was there and she was so brilliant. And I'm very proud of this bit. This is what happened because Elodie was so brilliant, you know, at the end of the scene where I go, am I supposed to be the little girl? And I, and I, and I walk away from Ted saying that I'm just waiting for you to get fired. That was where the scene was meant to end. It was meant to end there. Originally in the script, it was just ended there. But because Elodie had been so good, and because it was clear the dynamic between me and her was great, I was like, I said, to, I was like, is is that is Elodie still here? Because maybe she'd gone home. We'd filmed her stuff, and she was still there. And I and I ran over and I was like, Do you mind doing one more thing? And she was like, Yeah, of course. She was like, Yeah, of course. Smoking a cigarette. <laughs> sure, what do you need? <laughs> Having a glass of wine at the end of a day. And I was like, uh, uh, she was not smoking a cigarette in case her mother was listening to this. <laughs> she was having a glass of wine. And, uh, and I said, <laughs> and I, said um, I said, would you mind? Like, I said, I'm going to call. I'm going to call for you. I just want you to run. And I said, I'm not going to look back at you. I'm just going to, I'm going to time it. I'm going to put out my hand and you take my hand. And that moment, like one of the people never believe me, but one of the people that Roy Kent is based on is uh, Bill Sykes in Oliver and uh and there's you know in Oliver Bill Sykes is like bullseye and <laughs> and it, that's his dog so when Roy walks away from that moment I had it like 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 Bill Sykes calling bullseye he goes Phoebe and she runs along and I could hear her footsteps so I, I timed it just so as she's coming to me I held up my hand and she takes my hand and it's such a lovely encapsulation of their relationship in that he sounds scary but he fucking loves her and she's not scared of him and she loves him and and the way they hold hands so that was a real moment of like there's more in it there's a lot more in this than we perhaps had i mean we always we we'd planned this this relationship but it was like we can do more with this because she's so great and how good are you at not swearing around her on set (laughs) <laughs> I'm uh, absolutely useless and I swear around her all the time and I I, I believe there's a contract in place that means I'm not going to get in trouble <laughs> I, I have it with her mum I signed the contract I was like listen reality is I'm not going to be able to not swear in front of her I don't know what the rules are it's fine but basically Elodie is so smart and, and mature and sh- she makes me look really stupid 
Like as in she she's not she's not impressed by the swearing. She's taking you know she's she's making notes of how bad I am. She she doesn't she's like she you know like in episode one of season two which we probably can talk about she does have a list of there he goes again. <laughs> like she's she's quite world wary with it. I don't think I'm uh, having any. No, I think in any if anything, I think she'll grow up not to swear because she's. She'll be, she's had enough of swear words. I don't know if anything I've said is is legal. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's there's rules with child actors you're not meant to. If that's the case, can we cut this bit? <laughs> I think you'll be fine. Um, I do want to touch. You know, you you mentioned before that uh, that the hope is that Ted Lasso is is something that that exists far into the future. Apple is very quick to renew the show for a second and then a third season. Yeah. What can you say about how the season two finale really sets up season three? And how many seasons do you guys see Ted Lasso going for? I can't say anything to either of those questions. <laughs> the, um, I mean, I believe season two finale very much sets up season three. I can say that. Uh, and beyond that, I can't say anything else, I'm afraid. I'm so sorry, Leslie. It's, again, it's not you. It's not you. It's me. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, we're in a, in, a, in a we're in a streaming era where many shows they're lucky to get to season three, and very few of them get to season four or even beyond. But yeah. is this? A, do, do you see Ted in your conversations w- with Bill and Jason and all the rest of the writers as something that could live far beyond three, or is this m- more it's of in, the? It's entirely in Jason's hands. Like uh, we would all be very happy if you said oh we have to do this into into our 80s i'd be like yeah okay but i don't it is entirely up to jason so i'm afraid you're gonna to have to ask him that question leslie i can't uh, speak for jason he's his own man <laughs> without spoiling anything about the episode though this season does have a christmas episode And it's the kind of episode that's a big hearted episode that in some shows would probably be like a season finale. You guys have it kind of right in the middle of the season. What was the feeling on set like for that episode? Uh, Well, the thing was, it was the coldest it has ever been in England while we were filming Ted Lasso this year. Like it was crazy. I felt so sorry for Jason and Brendan because... I think we had one day of sun in the five months we filmed. And I rem- the day that it was sunny, I was like, see, yeah, it happens. <laughs> we, uh, it, we do get sun here. And then they were leaving the next day. Um, so filming the Christmas episode, although it was obviously a bit surreal because it was March, I think it was actually fucking snowing. So it wasn't that weird. Uh, and... You know, you always want you've always wanted to do a Christmas show, so it was it was great. It was just weird for people walking past in the street because they'd see Ted in a Santa hat just walking along Richmond Green, and everyone's like, "What year is it? What's happening? Where are we?" Um, you know, beyond Ted Lasso, you know, obviously the, the success, the Emmy nominations, etc. Before this, you also had Soul Mace, which you co-created and which premiered on AMC last year. What kind of impact has Ted Lasso had on the opportunities that you've been getting as an actor, as an as a writer, as a stand-up? And where do you see yourself wanting to focus going forward? Oh, uh, I uh, annoyingly, I, I love all the all of them. I love acting, writing, and stand-up, and I wouldn't want to not do any of them. So, can I just? carry on doing all of them 
please. Please, Leslie. Please don't make me choose. Okay, Emmy nominee Brett Goldstein. You're totally fine. You don't have to choose. But But if there's something that, like, have you, what about, you know, the phone calls, the incoming calls for your work must be ringing. You must be getting a lot of incoming calls. Relentless. Relentless. I'm going to have to go soon to catch up with all the missed calls I got. Yeah, look, sure. Uh, I'm sure this has led to lots of opportunities. It's, like I say, I, I, I've been doing this a while. Like I, I, I've been around, so it's weird to. This is definitely the biggest thing I've been part of by a, by a huge stretch, and uh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful when you think, "Well, this is amazing," uh, but it is also the. It's the same but bigger. You know, it's still you're still just trying to make good stuff and have a nice time doing it and it's really really lovely to have more opportunities but then also i don't think any of us have any time for anything else it takes takes half a year to write to less and half a year to film to less so i'll do a couple of gigs at night and that's probably it <laughs> that'll be it you know some stand up at night and uh and when we finish the show when i'm 80 i'll uh <laughs> look at the other things <laughs> nicely done that being said, you've mentioned your love of the Muppets several times in this conversation, mm-hmm. and that is a property that they've always, for I would say the past 25, 30 years, had difficulties knowing exactly what to do with. So if someone says, hey, Emmy nominee Brett Goldstein, Thank you. here are the Muppets, what would you like to do with them? What well, would you like to do with the Muppets? I would just like that conversation to happen. Uh, that's the, 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 the last thing on my bucket list list. There are three things left on my bucket list. No one jump out of a plane and work with the Muppets. That's, that's the two things left. I mean, there's a third one, but I can't say it on here. I'm picturing some very Roy, Roy Kent uh, scenarios here. <laughs> the listeners will draw their own conclusions, but continue. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Four. There's four. There's four left. I've got so much to live for. Uh, I will not tell you what I would do with the Muppets because I would very much like to have that conversation and uh, I would love to work with the Muppets. I think I've made that clear. I think I've been trying to incept this into the world since day one, which is why I'm constantly having a Muppet poster behind me with Pimper I think Brett, I think Brett likes the Muppets. Oh, me? Yeah. Well, if you're interested, sure. Yeah. I love that so much. Um, well, beyond the Muppets, we do like to close these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying? Uh, I have the two shows that I watched. Oh, listen, I was very busy. I was very, very lucky. I was very busy during the lockdown because we were writing season two. I was doing it on Zoom and stuff. And I was also working on Soulmates. So I didn't have a lot of time. I was just in an attic working all the time. But I did watch the two things that I watched that blew my mind where I may destroy you, and it's a sin, uh, both of which I just think are incredible pieces of art, and and they're both written by a single person, which blows my mind. You know, 12 episodes of I May Destroy You and five hours of It's a Sin, and they're just incredible writing, performance, put together everything. And if you've not seen either of those shows, I very much suggest that you do. Definitely two of our favorites. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us thank on the so podcast much. today. Emmy nominee, Brett Goldstein. <laughs> thank you very much, Daniel and Leslie. It has been a pleasure. 
New episodes of Ted Lasso premiere Fridays on Apple TV Plus starting July 23rd. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Number five. Not a lot to choose from here, Dan. You've got Ted Lasso Season 2 on Apple. You just heard our great and fun interview with Emmy nominee Brett Goldstein. And then, as you mentioned a couple times in this episode, Dan, the Olympics finally began with Friday's early morning opening ceremony, Pacific time. Not a lot to choose from, but what do you check it out? I mean, there are, there are a few other options. Uh, some people are excited about the new Netflix He-Man show uh, that was created by Kevin Smith, which, you know, could justifiably excite some people. I watched the first few episodes of it, and they definitely do have a perspective slash angle on the He-Man mythology, primarily that the real focus of the episodes I've watched is uh, is Tila, who is voiced by Sarah Michelle Gellar. It's a really, really fun vocal cast, right down to Stephen Root as Cringer. I mean, come on, if you're of a certain generation, that's fun. Uh, and I would say that of pandering pieces of random 80s nostalgia go, the Netflix He-Man show is significantly better than Turner and Hooch on Disney+, Plus, which offers a slobbering Mastiff and little more. Uh, and the Turner and Hooch reboot, legacy sequel, whatever we're calling it, uh, it's not very good. It has a strangely overqualified production team, you know, it was created by Burn Notice creator Matt Nix. Uh, the pilot was directed by McGee, which used to mean something. Not really sure what it means at this point, but, you know, whatever. It's a thing that exists. Uh, Josh Peck, who's the star, is actually very likable. I mean, if you're if you're going to find a bargain basement version of 1989 Tom Hanks, Josh Peck is just fine as that. He's he's not perfect. I, you know, I can think of alternatives, but it doesn't look like they spent all that much money on this show or this cast. So who knows? Anyway, it's, it's not very good, but also the movie Turner and Hooch, uh, not, not very good movie either. It's uh, it's a very, very limited movie. So what you, what you expect is, is what you get out of this one. Uh, if we're sticking with things that actually premiered before, and if anyone out there actually has, or, knows that they have AMC plus I, I kind of dug ultra city saints, which is Steve Conrad who did Patriot and perpetual grace limited several of our, our former colleague, Tim Goodman's favorite shows. Uh, this is a stop motion animation. It is from the people who do <laughs> robot chicken using baby dolls dressed up and, hairstyled into humans. It is a musical noir comedy about a missing mayoral candidate and a city in decay. It is funny, disturbing, strange. I can't tell you if it's actually a good show because three shows, three episodes just isn't enough. It, it could run out of juice in a hurry, but it is definitely the kind of show that is going to find a, a cult appeal Probably, well, hard to know when, because I don't know if the cult that would watch it has AMC Plus. So who knows? Anyway, that brings us to Ted Lasso, which is really and truly what you tuned in for the Critics Corner for this week, if you tuned in. Uh, season one of Ted Lasso really did 
sneak up on people. And to me, it snuck up on me mostly because the shorts that it was based on, the NBC sports shorts, are are very jokey. They're very punchline driven and the jokes are almost all ha 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 soccer is weird. Ha ha ha. The British are weird. It's confusing. Uh, you heard Brett Goldstein talk about that. Sorry, Emmy nominee Brett Goldstein. Talk about that a couple seconds earlier. Uh the second season really is thankfully able to get away from a lot of that. So no, Ted Lasso does not suddenly understand the offsides rule. And there are periodic things where he is confused by British idioms. But it's a lot more, here's the world that we're living in, not isn't it strange that an American football coach is coaching British football. Uh, and I appreciated that. I, I think that the eight episodes that have been sent to critics are – there is no sense that there is a decline in quality. That is that is the most important and key thing. If Ted Lasso was a show that made you happy, that filled you with the warm fuzzies, et cetera, et cetera, it will continue to do that. I think I actually probably found it funnier in these episodes because, again, the fish out of water stuff was easy. It, it just was it was easy, somewhat cheap comedy. It was part of what kept me from instantly hopping on board with Ted Lasso in the first couple episodes. You know, by the end of the first season, I was on board, but it took a while to get there. And this it's pretty much what it is going forward. The show has a very, very good sense of what its strengths are. And so you basically can see the show going, okay, well, if this worked in the first season, not exactly that we're going to double down on it. It's not like this is straight up, I guess, pandering is my favorite word. And it's, uh, you know, it's not like they're saying, well, if you like this thing once, we'll give it to you 50 times. But on the other hand, if, for example, in the first season, you're like, ooh, it was a revelation when Hannah Waddington, Waddingham rather, got to got to sing karaoke, don't worry, you'll get to hear her sing again. But she doesn't sing in every episode. So it's kind of knowing your strengths, playing to them, not abusing them. So far, a good sense of that. Uh, the relationship with a bunch of the relationships, I would say, are, are good and expanded. So one of the highlights of the first season was Hannah Waddingham getting to share scenes with Juno Temple increasingly as the season went along. There's more of that this time around. It's important. A lot of people liked the Diamond Dogs, the uh, the the group of of guys just sitting around chatting that that Ted puts together with uh, with Nick Muhammad's Nate and with Brendan Hunt's Coach Beard, etc. Um, with Higgins also. Don't want to forget about Higgins, Jeremy Swift. Uh, so there's more of that. People liked watching Emmy nominee Brett Goldstein as Roy Kent and the relationship with also Emmy nominee, but not a podcast guest, Juno Temple with Keeley. There's a lot of that. If you liked watching Roy and his nurse and his niece, Phoebe, there's a lot of that. So I, one of the results of all of that, of course, is that probably there's less Ted Lasso this season in Ted Lasso. And I think that's okay. I think it's reflective of Jason Sudeikis being willing to share the spotlight. I think he unquestionably is here. And yeah, I, I liked these eight episodes a lot. Several of them are real standouts. I think that the Christmas episode that's a part of this initial group of eight is one of my favorites of that particular genre, which I don't really all that much love in general, but it's one of my favorites of that genre that I've seen. And yeah, it's it's smart, it's funny, it's big-hearted. 
uh, if you like the cast, it only expands and, and becomes more appealing. Sarah Niles, who joins the cast as Sharon, a sports psychologist, is a is a great addition. Yeah, a, this this is good, solid television. It's going to be interesting to see how, with greater anticipation, people respond to the weekly airings of Ted Lasso because – more people, I would say, discovered Ted Lasso as a binge a month or two or three months after the season ended than watched it on a weekly basis. And if you're watching it on a weekly basis, these episodes are only 35-ish minutes apiece, and that's a long time to wait for the, for the next week, even if it's what broadcast networks have been making people do forever. Um, even if it's what Disney Plus has gotten Marvel fans. Exactly. To. Oh, totally. Exactly. I would say it's it's in, you know, it's it's no different than what The Mandalorian, to be sure, and WandaVision did I, with Loki and with uh, and with Falcon and Winter Snowman. Um, they're they're basically hour longs anyway. So it's it's kind of easier to wait those out for the week. This sometimes I'm sure some people are going to be like, boy, I would really just as soon watch them in batches or maybe people will take their their weekly 35 minutes with Ted Lasso and make it into the centerpiece of of the weekend clearing off the grime of whatever nastiness happened during the week and you know it serves a purpose in that respect as well um you are not a critic i've been told but you also watched at least some of these episodes what do you think of the new episodes of Ted Lasso Leslie loved them just <laughs> loved it i still you know uh, still one of my favorites. Um, season two is, it's great to have it back. And for me, like, it, it, as you said, it continues to deliver the strength of season one. And to me, it, it feels like it's more about something bigger. So I, I don't want to spoil anything here, but uh, I both enjoyed them and was impressed by what I've seen so far. And I've seen four of the eight that they sent out to critics. Yeah, definitely. Definitely this is not a falling off a cliff second season. And I'm yeah, there's, well, there's no sophomore slump. No sophomore slump yet. It's always... It's, well, so it's, ten, it's 10 episodes, right? So it's, they, tw they, it's 12, 12 episodes. They've sent out eight, eight to critics. So I can tell you that... Safe two, bet. That two-thirds of the season doesn't fail. But, uh, you know, unfor unfortunately, there are so many different ways for a second season show to start off promisingly and fall off the cliff. But let's just pretend that's not what Ted Lasso is going to do because so far it has not. And it would be nice if we could simply have a nice thing. Well said. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review, we think, because it helps spread the word of mouth, move us up and down search engines and whatnot. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. Come let us know what's working, what isn't working, etc. But if you have questions for future podcasts, and, you know, you never know when the next listener mail segment is going to be necessary. You can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. <laughs> <laughs>